Welcome to the Data for Resilient Cities podcast series, exploring how data can help cities become more resilient, smart, and responsive to challenges. This series is brought to you jointly by Center for Applied Geomatics, CRDF, and by CoData, the Committee on Data of the International Science Council. Via this podcast series, we bring to you reflections on the interdisciplinary approaches and the innovative use of data taken by various cities, offering examples of good practices and lessons learned. Hi, this is Shelly Gandhi from CEPT Research and Development Foundation. Today, we bring to you an episode on using big data to predict disasters. In this episode, we have Sri C.K. Koshi, Advisor, CRDF India, in a conversation with Bapon Parukdin, Technical Director, Disaster Risk and Climate Resilience, Token and Taylor International, joining us from New Zealand. I welcome you both on this episode. Hi, Bapon. Wonderful Hi. talking to you. It's uh, very exciting for me in my generation to be using this technology to reach out halfway across the globe to you in New Zealand. Thank you so much, Koshi. It would be much more exciting, I believe, to learning from you. Great. I, I think I should begin really by congratulating GoData and the SEPT University Center for Applied Geomatics for organizing the series of podcasts on data for resilient cities. In fact, surprisingly, I find that this fits in very neatly with uh, the UNDRR uh, theme, which is making cities resilient in 2030. They've adopted that as a theme. And therefore, I think this is a very timely and a very relevant series of podcasts. And uh, my uh, compliments and kudos to the Center for Applied Geomatics for initiating this. So I just want to put things in perspective. I think that uh, we are living in a very, very critical and if I may use a very drastic expression, dangerous period in the history of mankind. The UN Office for Disaster Risk Reduction has in fact given us statistics and I read recently one of their publications comparing the last 20 years with the earlier 20 years and the occurrence of natural disasters has increased dramatically. It is 7,348 disaster events in the last 20 years compared to 4,212 events in the previous 20 years. And the deaths grow globally have increased from 1.19 million to 1.23 million. And therefore, I think that we are living in a very dangerous period and natural disasters probably triggered by climate change is going to be a very, very important challenge facing all of mankind. I fully agree with you. And I think also looking at the current perspectives, uh, as you can see that we all actually committed to the major global framework, which is Sendai Framework, Paris Agreement, Sustainable Development Goal, and the new urban agenda, data is so crucial to making a coherence and ecosystems so that we all actually able to achieve those things in the time frame. And after this five years of this, each of this framework, which started from 2015, 
we actually able to come up with a realization that how important this data is and how actually this data is actually the only the solution to making it coherent as well as to making sure that we have a disaster risk reduction in place with sustainable development goal as you know uh, the third un world conference on disaster risk reduction has adopted the sendai framework for disaster risk reduction and they have put the year 2015 to 2030 as the 15 year period in which state governments both nationally and internationally adopt strategies for risk reduction and therefore i think it's very very important that people start looking at this start getting aware of this and start discussing this because i think nothing could be more important for individual governments and for the international community than really focusing on disaster management but i always had a little confusion in my mind bapun there is a growing feeling that one should now look at natural disasters not so much as natural disasters but as hazards and there is an increasing school of opinion which distinguishes between the two perhaps you could throw some light on that Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, we had a, I think, a long perception uh, talking about more on a natural disaster, which is actually. But if you look at in a in a, in a general concept, no disaster actually occurred naturally. So it, there is a always a anthropogenic or man-made intervention is there, and that's why we should not actually saying a natural disaster instead of say only natural hazard as as a, as a human being or other. several factors actually make it as a disaster and those are basically the consequences of the hazard right in fact i remember when we had the 2001 uh, earthquake in gujarat one of the experts came and told me mr koshi earthquakes don't kill people buildings do therefore he was driving home the point that it is unsafe buildings that result in the death of people and not the natural phenomenon of earthquakes but going forward papon i thought that being a person from an older generation i would look at three illustrative examples of disasters which i am familiar with in gujarat and maybe you could discuss about the latest technology being used and big data being harnessed today as in contrast to the primitive methods we had 10 20 30 years ago i am very familiar with floods on the river narmada i happen to be collector of broch district and the river narmada flows through the broch district and empties into the arabian sea and in the early 70s we were devastated by floods on the narmada almost every year and the way we responded to that situation was really to look at rainfall in the catchment area which was 98000 square kilometers of the basin measure physically measure the rainfall in rain gauges and then use an algorithm to predict how much the level of the narmada river at its mouth would rise in relation to the exact rainfall upstream maybe 800000 kilometers upstream that worked in a very very primitive way and we used to get about 8 to 12 hours advance warning and then we used that warning 
to correlate it to the number of villages which needed to be evacuated. Now, that was a very, very primitive way of doing it. I, I was wondering how floods are really predicted now using big data. Well, thanks, Koshi. I mean, also, if you look at in, in, in the say, 1960s or 1970s in that area, I think we were more on more responsive or more like uh, trying to look at structural measures in the flood mitigation or flood risk reduction. And I think from your time, as you just rightly mentioned that, you know, started the early warning systems or how actually you can able to predict the flood so that a structural and non-structural measures both could be combined to making sure your community is safe and safer. And if you want to make that happen, data plays a quite crucial role, not only just predicting the flooding, but also your risk assessment. Because as you just rightly mentioned, I mean, an earthquake didn't kill people, it's actually the building. So if you don't understand what is your building strength to responding that particular hazard, that will not, cannot be stand. And similarly for a flooding, if you don't understand what would be your flood level, you cannot actually ensure that people are safe within their home or even in a shelter or even in a, their community. So the data player here to understanding the exposure of the flooding, the vulnerability of the flooding, and based on that to understand the risk and consequences of flood so that you are able to properly design what kind of structural recurs for flood mitigation, as well as an early warning so that people are able to get prepared, as well as make sure that they actually can save their lives or save their belongings, whatever actually they are dealing with. That's wonderful. That's a great way of using technology to save lives. The second uh, major disaster I am at least familiar with is our droughts, because Gujarat is a drought-prone area like Rajasthan and, the, and several states in India. So in 85, 86, and 87, for three years in succession, the monsoons in Gujarat failed. And I was appointed as the relief commissioner to handle the drought. And I remember how, again, using very primitive measures, we could only measure rainfall. And then we would scramble to try to save lives and try to save livestock and try to ensure that livelihood was given to people with the organizing relief works. But if we had a very scientific method of predicting rainfall and taking advanced action to ensure that those areas prone and susceptible to drought could be attended to and, and, the, and the effects of drought mitigated, again, we would be doing a tremendous, tremendous uh, 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 service to society and to mankind. So has the entire approach to drought management improved with the technology and with data? I think that, that that's one of the biggest area, I should say, that actually the scientists or scientific community are able to achieve so far, uh, a seamless integration of data. So it's not data, data only, data from the satellite imagery, data from the observation station, data from the topography, and data from the base database from the settlement or asset database, how actually those all could be linked to one is like the predicting the, the drought itself, because drought is always tricky. Uh, we often maybe say 
uh, there is a El Nino that actually created drought, or there is a monsoon that could be created drought, that could be a southeasterly that could be created drought. But there are so many systems within the weather that actually contributing all this factor. And if we just look at one particular aspect, you may be actually misguided through the overall systems because any system could form in, at any time. But using this big data and having this kind of uh, availability to analyzing those big data you know, together in one single platform, it gives a seamless integration by the scientist or by the meteorologist to link up your satellite imagery, your observation, and then producing a proper information or a probabilistic information, which could give a more confidence to the scientific community. And that could be relayed to the community to better understand what does it mean to them and how they want to respond, especially for a agriculture country like India or Bangladesh or maybe South Asia, where you know the whole agriculture is depend on the on the water systems. So that may help them quite a lot using this big data to understanding more long-term seasonality. So has there been any examples where we have succeeded in uh, harnessing this uh, technology? If you look at like the, the in, in Southeast Asia, the Indonesia and Philippines, they're actually one of the highest rice produced country. If you look at from the, from the region. And if you try to get why actually they are getting so much, you know, pioneer in this area. And behind that, you'll be find that their farmers actually understand the climate variability. They have a climate field school where actually the farmers goes before the season and try to understand what would be the season look like. And based on this scientific information, uh, like in the Department of Agriculture Extension, they try to interpret those data into more common language, like your water would be more than the last year, or the water would be less from the last year. And that kind of understanding gives the farmer to better understand what kind of cropping pattern, crop selection, as well as whether they need more irrigation or non-irrigation kind of uh, situation. And that, that's the reason actually they're able to come up with a so advanced in Southeast Asia on rice production. And similarly, if you look at on other part of the like Brazil or in Australia, the, the seasonal prediction is quite important for farmers and many other sectors to better understand their production as well as their profit. And this is one of the successful scenario you can say, or example you could say, that, that how actually the data able to help them. This is really very heartening to see that this uh, is not just theory and not in textbooks, but it's actually being used to better predict uh, drought. Let me move on to an area which is still a big question mark, even among scientists. In Gujarat, we had what is now referred to as the killer earthquake in, on 26th January, 2001. 7.7 on the Richter scale, and uh, the official figures of death is 13,800, though there are reports that it is, could be as high as 20,000 lives lost. Now, scientists tell me, seismologists tell us, that you can't really predict an earthquake. And they tell me that there is no science available for prediction of earthquakes. So what I was wondering is that, A, is there anything new in this field? for predicting earthquakes, and B, if we were to be hit with an earthquake, how can we really use technology to better prepare ourselves, starting from, and Gujarat learned very bitter lessons 
is that you have to build buildings which are earthquake proof and which are safe during earthquakes. But there's a whole range of initiatives and actions that uh, countries and states which are in the seismological sensitive zone can take. So maybe you could begin by sharing us whether whether there is any science for predicting earthquakes. Well, I mean, to be frank, the time that you are talking about, that's maybe the right in that time because anything regarding the earthquake, if you want to predict, you need to have a quite dense seismic station to understand what are the earthquake magnitude in the area because at least you need a triangulation to understand the earthquake location as well as magnitude of earthquake. But even saying so, you may hear recently there has been a lot of countries they are using actually earthquake early warning system, but it doesn't keep you a quite longer lead time because that's impossible to provide from the science perspectives. But as you know that in an earthquake, there's a two waves actually works. So the starting wave is like a P wave and then start with the S wave. So when the, the first waves, it actually non-destructive and then the second wave is actually the destructive. So, and one wave to another wave, it takes more or less, you may have one minute, 1.5 minute, or even a two minute, depending on the location, depth, and magnitude, all, all kind of uh, situation. So that and, isn't actually advanced warning systems, isn't it? Yeah, so, and, and many of the country try to adopt, even in New Zealand, we actually start adopting that kind of, you know, technology to stop critical infrastructure, like if you have a um, fast riding train, how can you stop those things? Because those are create a catastrophic disaster in an earthquake. Or if you have a nuclear power plant, how can actually you stop those kind of things within a minute? So once you have a one minute lead time, how you can automate your system to make it stop and as well as make reducing the damage itself. So that's able to achieved by the scientists to in the earthquake field. but you are right in a sense because you cannot go like a, a day-long prediction or like an hour-long prediction for uh, using a seismicity to, to earthquake. But on the other hand, the scientists are also able to come up with a kind of scenario, a sort of like a hotspot that which area is actually quite prone to earthquake. So you can actually take a little bit on preventive measures that one, whatever the building structure you built there, we make sure those are actually that kind of earthquake resistance. I was thinking of, uh, you know, we tried in Gujarat, the government tried not only to create seismic zones, but then they went one step further and tried to map micro seismic zones. So then you have more targeted approach in designing buildings. Is that catching on everywhere now? Yeah, that's one of, I think, the approach I think most of the country tried to adopt. And based on that, they try to actually putting together their building codes as well as their regulation so that uh, they make sure that any infrastructure that built on those are able to actually uh, resistance to that kind of magnitude of earthquake. That's great uh, advancement. And uh, yes, hoping that uh, in future, even earthquakes which hit us without warning, we will at least be better prepared. And the examples of say Japan, they have pretty well mastered the technology of being prepared for earthquakes rather than wait for it to hit us unawares. But you know, Bakwan, it leaves me a little puzzle that with all this happening, most of the national governments do not have in place any kind of 
articulated, well thought out policy in harnessing the new technology for disaster management. Now, I think almost every country has a dedicated organization for disaster management. In India, we have the National Disaster Management Authority backed by acts of parliament. So it's a statutory body. But I don't think they have a team which is really looking at new technology and particularly in using big data for helping them to plan, uh, be prepared and to take advanced action. So I think one of the most important things looking ahead is how do we introduce big data technology into the mainstream disaster management planning model? Yeah, I mean, there has been some initiatives and you are absolutely right. I mean, as, as a country or as a national level, we often quite underutilize the data or fail to able to understand how actually we could create an overall data ecosystems. And I think probably the COVID-19 has given a quite good lessons learned for every single government that how important the data is to making sure that the people are safe. And with this kind of experiences on the pandemic, I think the government should take some more uh, rigorous initiative that how this kind of, you know, data ecosystem could built for the disaster risk reduction. I mean, as you came from a government side of, one of the data center in, in a national government is actually the National Statistical Department. But that doesn't deal with any kind of natural disaster, neither for climate change or not even any other things. Their task is more on like a national statistical data or your population data sensors, those kind of activity they major lead on. But they are, on the other hand, more expert on how to data cleaning, data integration, data interoperability, all sort of things. And then you have, again, the disaster management authority who only deals with the disaster. But again, you have the Minister of Environment who actually deals with the climate change. So when you're talking about the data, you need actually all database. It's not only just disaster data. It's not only just climate data. You also need a weather data, which belongs to the meteorological department. That's a great uh... Uh, initiative to go forward and I was delighted the other day to find that the National Disaster Management Institute, which is located very close to where I stay in Gandhinagar, the capital of Gujarat, has actually started putting out condensed online courses to educate people and make them aware of how do you prepare, how are you sensitive to disasters and how do you save lives. So that initiative has started. And let's hope that going forward, national governments will look at uh, preventing disasters and ensuring less lives are lost. And I think the starting point is creating awareness among the students and the younger population. Thank you very much, Bapon. And I think it's been a great talking to you. I've learned a great deal. And I think this is a good place to start an initiative, hopefully, in other governments too. Thank you. And th thank you so much, Koshi. I mean, I think we all actually learned from your generation that what actually we learned from the past and how we can actually learning from the past, we can apply for the present and make sure that our future generation could actually uh, get whatever actually we left over to take carry on and making sure that we have a safer and sound community and make their um, 
community more resilient. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you, Sri Koshi and Bapon, on sharing your experiences for disaster risk reduction from then to now. And it was really very enlightening to know how the technology has moved from manual data collection to the digital era. Thanks for listening to this episode from the Data for Resilient Cities podcast series. If you like our podcast and want to know more about the series, check out our website www.crdf.org and follow us on social media. Please leave a review and like and share wherever you listen to the podcast. Look out for the next episode and join us next time. Mm -hmm.